0: It's night, a stick, a stone, it's the end of the road, it's the rest of a stump, it's a little alone, it's a sliver of glass, it is life, it's the sun, it is night, it is death, it's a trap, it's a gun, the oak when it blooms, a fox in the brush, the knot of the wood, the song of a thrush, the wood of the wind, a cliff, a fall, a scratch, a lump, it is nothing at all. It's the wind blowing free, it's the end of the slope. It's a beam, it's a void, it's a hunch, it's a hope. And the riverbank bank talks of the waters of March. It's the end of the strain, it's the joy in your heart. The foot, the ground, the flesh and the bone, the beat of the road, a slingshot stone, a fish, a flesh, a silvery glow, a fight, a bat. The range of a bow The bed of the well The end of the line The dismay in the face It's a loss, it's a fine A spear, a spike, a point A nail, a drip, a drop The end of the tail A truckload of bricks In the soft morning light The shot of a gun In the dead of the night A mile, a must, a thrust It's a bum. it's a girl, it's a rhyme, it's a cold, it's the mumps, the plan of the house, the body in bed, and the car that got stuck, it's the mud, it's the mud, a float, a drift, a flight, a wing, a hawk, a quail, the promise of spring. and the riverbank talks of the waters of March, it's the promise of life, it's the joy in your heart. Joe, it's a thorn in your hand and a cut in your toe. A point, a grain, a bee, a bite, a blink, a buzzard, a sudden stroke of night, a pin, a needle, a sting, a pain, a snail, a riddle, a wasp, a stain. A bass in the mountains, a horse and a mule. In the distance the shells rose shadows of blue. And the riverbank talks of the waters of Mars. It's the promise of life in your heart, in your heart. A stick, a stone, the end of the load. The rest of the stump, a lonesome road. A sliver of glass, a life, a sun, a night, a death. The end of the run and the riverbank talks of the waters of March. It's the end of all strain, it's the joy in your heart.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Weekly Review with Roman. Today, it's Friday, November 19th, 2021. Thanks so much for tuning in. Got another dumb day in this country. And I'll uh, be providing a show. We've got music, we've got some news articles, and other things that folks can do to hopefully make this world a little bit better. Less bad. That's a, a low bar, but we'll, we'll take it. Start off with some music as per usual. First heard, Waters of March by Antonio Carlos Yo Beam, and then Trigger Cut, Wounded Kite at 17 by Pavement, and then Jun Koku by Felakudi and Nigeria 70. Ugh Um ugh. just Ugh feeling lots of Ugh. That's pretty much it. I'm just gonna sigh for about an hour and a half. No, I won't. I'll provide some news and everything. First wanted to Uh, Just acknowledge that we're on Ramaytush Ohlone land and folks can go to ramaytush.org and that's r-a-m-a-y-t-u-s-h.org to read about the original inhabitants of San Francisco. You can also donate and um, look at upcoming events that are happening and sign petitions. And there's a lot more information there, Um, projects that are upcoming as well as resources and a lot more. So please do check that out. Oh, yeah. Ugh, just, ugh. I'll I'll get into some more as the show goes on. Um, I'll be providing a lot of resources here because that's sometimes it feels like uh, everything's terrible. And a lot of things are terrible. And the system that we're living under for the time being is pretty fucking treacherous and disgusting. And I guess I could say that every week. So in in some cases, that's maybe not specific but uh just the the kyle rittenhouse uh, verdict came out this morning so i think that's probably part of what's uh, fueling uh the feelings here and again it's unfortunately it's, it's i mean it's this thing that's it's not surprising because this country has been built on white supremacy and people have been getting away with murder since the very beginning And to think it was anything different or would be anything different, I think would be naive. So I do want to share, uh, actions that people can take because that's the, that's one thing that folks can do, right? And it's showing up for each other. So I did want to share that there is, uh, an action, um, tonight, Um, that's happening in Oakland, but there's not really a sense of who has called it, so I'm also just wanting to acknowledge that. This is happening at uh, 14th and Broadway in Oakland at 6 p.m. tonight. This was shared on Twitter, Um, and of course, just the warning that if you do go out to be careful, because there will be most likely a lot of cops there, so I did want to share that. And I will update that when I hear more information. One thing that folks can do, well, there's a lot of things that people can do. I did want to share Surge, um, which is you can find it at surge.surj.org. Um, I get their emails, and they have a lot of actions, and they're mostly involved with uh, white folks organizing against white supremacy. And they have a lot of actions that folks can take and wanted to share that there's uh, a new member orientation, which is happening on December 9th at 5 p.m. 8 Eastern time. And you can learn more about joining organizing work in white communities. And we'll share a link to that on our page at weeklyrev.org. You can also find a Surge chapter near you. And they have chapters everywhere, like so many places, places I've never heard of in the country. I'll do a quick rundown of this list. There's an alliance of white anti-racists everywhere in Los Angeles. There's the Anti-Racism Collective. There's Atlanta Surge, Aware, Tulsa, Berea United for Racial Justice. That's in Berea, Kentucky. Uh, Berkshire Surge, Milford, Sacco Area Surge. That's in Maine. There's Blount County Surge, which is in Tennessee. There's Capital District Surge in Albany, New York. Catalyst Project here in San Francisco, Central Colorado, Central Mississippi, Central Ohio, Central Pennsylvania, Champaign-Urbana, Clackamas County, which is in Oregon, the Coalition of Anti-Racist Whites, based out of Seattle, there's the Columbia Surge in South Carolina, Community Change, Inc., based out of Boston, there's Concord, New Hampshire, uh, Corvallis in Oregon, Des Moines, East Alabama, Eastern Kentucky, Enfield, i um, not sure where Enfield is. It uh, looks like maybe Connecticut, possibly. Um, so the list goes on and on, and this is just a fraction of them. So uh, you can find this information at uh, surge.org, and we'll also just share links. So if you're listening and or know folks in um, a variety of these areas who would be interested in joining up uh, to learn more, please do pass along that info. <sighs> Deep sigh. Another uh, resource wanted to share is that Mijente has shared a deportation defense toolkit. Uh, it's in English and in Spanish, and it came out uh, yesterday on the 18th, and it says, it says the new PD memo goes into effect on November 29th, 2021. That's why we made a defense toolkit with At Just Futures Law. It's one important tool we can use to stop deportations and keep our communities intact. So I'll we'll share a link to that as well on our site, and this uh, includes tips on determining the intervention based on the case, gathering relevant case information with sample forms, gathering letters of support with templates, and organizing a public campaign and more. So we'll be sharing that in our show notes section today. Next up, uh, got some articles Um, Also, uh, the U.S. is suing Uber for discrimination against disabled people. So if you or someone they were traveling with uh, were charged wait time fees, you should contact the Justice Department at 833-591-0425. It's toll free. Or at 202-305-6876. Or send an email to uber.fee at usdoj.gov. Hashtag disability rights. And so just put in the word out there as well. Uh, okay, and we'll also share a link to that. There's another article. Okay, so... I uh, <laughs> just want to, like, bang my head on the microphone, but that's not going to do anyone any good. I want to share an article here from uh, Teen Vogue, and this came out on uh, November 4th, 2021, by Ivelez, um Orlan, Orlano. Uh, Black Lives Matter protesters are facing felony charges a year after uprisings. I mean, that's the thing when folks ask about why prison abolition and there are folks in jail who haven't done anything fucking wrong at all. And there are war criminals walking free. There are murderers walking free. And that's, I think it's one, that's only one reason. And also just it, it costs more to keep people in jail than it does to, you know, ensure that people have housing. And so much of what is deemed as crime are people just trying to survive. So if someone steals something survivor to feed their families and then they get locked up how who is that fucking helping that's actually making things worse for everyone so let's get into this article i'll try not to uh lose my shit by the end of it but can't make any promises and this op-ed argues that the same oppressive system that was called out in 2020 is still hard at work Oof. and this piece was published in coordination with zealous an organization working to amplify the perspective of public defenders What is the price of dish soap? For Linnell, a 46-year-old Chicagoan, the price could be three to seven years in prison and a completely shattered life in future. Prosecutors say he took dish soap from a Chicago convenience store without paying during the uprisings after George Floyd's murder by white Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. For this and nothing more, Linnell was charged with burglary and looting. (sighs) For the past 14 months, Linnell has been forced to choose between 24-hour confinement in a shelter while wearing a court-ordered electronic shackle and being prohibited from leaving or getting sent to jail in the cages of Cook County's Department of Corrections until his case goes to trial. Linnell is one of thousands arrested during the summer of 2020's calls for an end to police violence and oppression. In Chicago, he is one of over 160 individuals still facing felony charges and, collectively, hundreds of years in prison. During court hearings, these people, people I and the... Uh, by I, this is the author speaking, and other public defenders in Chicago and its suburbs are now fighting for are reduced by prosecutors and judges to words like looter, rioter, the mob, and criminal, and these are all in quotation marks, uh, racially coded terms that politicians have long used to inexplicitly refer to black and brown people. Outside of court, a familiar pattern then emerges. Police and prosecutors share their version of events with the media. Then the media, often pre-programmed for quick clicks and sensationalism, prints black and white stories devoid of context, sometimes using the same racialized, dehumanizing language that delegitimizes protesters and purposefully distracts from their message. The public then equates protest with violence and calls for racial justice with quote-unquote criminality." Oh, and calls for racial justice with criminality. Those with the power to change things, who for a moment pledge solidarity in action, again, feel free to double down on the same policies and practices that lead to the murder and caging of members of black and brown communities. The prosecution of Linnell and so many others is outrageous. Perhaps it is also the clearest illustration of the intersection of media, fear, and politics. A little over one year after cries of black lives matter rang through our streets the same oppressive criminal legal system people were protesting that lawmakers and corporations were calling out is now being used to silence dissent and justify the perpetuation of the status quo of racial injustice all of this is largely a failure of the media and not just a failure to tell the full story but to tell the truth let me explain George Floyd's murder precipitated an outpouring of support for social justice from across the political spectrum in corporate America. The public heard from, among others, Jeff Bezos, Nike, Utah Senator Mitt Romney, Uh, Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker. They expressed solidarity with protesters and pledged to take action through policy, philanthropy, and personal reflection. Most statements and pledges of this sort have proven to be mere platitudes. The same politicians that promise change are either undermining progress or investing even more in police budgets. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot, who told her city, we've got to be bold in the wake of Floyd's death, recently told Chicagoans that there is no question the Chicago police budget would, will soon increase. True to that promise, she recently unveiled plans to bump the police funding from $1.7 billion to $1.9 billion in the coming fiscal year. In 2020, New York Mayor Bill de Blasio promised to cut $1 billion from the city's police force, but mostly shifted money around instead, and a year later increased the NYPD budget by $200 million. After speaking out in support of the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker claimed that no sensible Senate Democrat would want to defund the police. Then there are the corporations that put out statements in support of black lives for a performative public relations boost in 2020. Some of these companies having long profited from appropriating black culture while excluding black creators and artists. People like Linnell face felony level looting and burglary charges stemming from the uprisings. But these multimillion dollar retailers continue to recoup their recoup their losses through insurance while supporting the prosecutions of protesters. Their store windows are rebuilt, luxury items replaced, and inequality continues. Business as usual. Without actual commitment and dedicated action, empty expressions of support do far more harm than good. They lull the public into believing that those with power will do something to change systems that permit police to commit murder, and that when their actions appear incongruous with such commitment, they are operating in good faith, guided by a heartfelt desire for public health and safety. The general public also moves on until the police kill someone else and the media decides to cover the story. In 2021 alone, so far, the police have killed 885 people. And this, is, this was written a few weeks ago. Ugh. Fear-mongering to multi-million dollar corporations about property damage is a distraction to keep people from pushing back against a long history in the U.S. of segregation, racism, and disinvestment, as are... The arrests and prosecutions of protesters who expressed understandable frustration and fury over brutal oppression. Spending an exorbitant amount in resources to pursue felony charges and prison time for people who participated in a massive protest movement is a continuation of the societal response to the protest. Beat them, silence them, discredit and cage them, all with the hopes of deterring them and others from speaking out in the future." So many of the people who have been criminalized and are now represented by public defenders, like me, the author, uh, did not break any windows or doors, set fires, make threats, or hurt anyone. These were quote-unquote crimes of need, poverty, and opportunity. Prosecution does nothing to address excuse me, the justifiable rage and anger over the inequities, uh, racism, and segregation in Chicago and elsewhere that prompted the uprisings. Most journalists don't tell you this. Systemic issues do not make for clickable stories. Historical context does not make for catchy headlines. The media does not report on why looting occurs or that it has been a tactic of protesters in America for centuries. The public rarely hears about the fraught history of property in the United States, which is rooted in white supremacy, settler colonialism, and slavery. We don't hear about how the police department that last year cashed in on a whopping $367 million overtime bill has also been marred by decades of misconduct and torture, costing Chicagoans over half a billion dollars in misconduct settlements over the past decade. The media doesn't tell you why the story is about much more than the dish soap or the television or the bottle of liquor. It is a lack of access to food, housing, education, and health care that drives the need to take, to protest, or do both at the same time. When talking to the people I represent, I see the results of decades of what scholar and prison abolitionist Ruth Wilson Gilmore calls organized abandonment. Somehow discussing how those in power make intentional decisions that dis- deprive swaths of people of basic human necessities is not relevant in conversations about crime. However, had any of the people I represent been born in a, to a different Chicago, in a different Chicago zip code or income bracket, their lives could have followed entirely different trajectories. If those in power and those who narrate the stories the public hears are not willing to even acknowledge why people took to the streets, the material conditions that cause their collective grief and rage, and the structures that create and maintain those conditions, how do we expect to address the underlying issues and structures that pers- precipitated this, The return to business, as usual, has become typical in this country, and it is disheartening and nonsensical. More than a year has passed since the promise of progress, but political leaders continue to respond in ways that only exacerbate the root problems. More prosecutions, more police funding, and during the protests themselves, further separation of the haves and have-nots through mandatory curfews, cutting off public transit, and raising bridges to prevent people from going downtown. As a public defender, I assure you, the answer will not be found in a courtroom or prison, spaces that silence through bars, walls, and legalese. Just as journalists often fail to cover protests with nuance and context, and many political leaders fail to respond with any creativity, our crushing legal system is not equipped to solve complex issues that have been centuries in the making. It's time to listen to the people who try to tell and show us about the violence of our system and mass criminalization. Instead of ramping up policing and prosecution and overlooking an entire movement in the process, it's time for leaders, corporations, and journalists to acknowledge and address the root causes of inequality that create conditions where someone is compelled to take dish soap from a store or break its window. Wow. Whew. So again, uh, this article, was this op-ed uh, was published on November 4th, 2021, written by... Ivalise uh or, orien, Oriano Oriano Orleano and came out on uh Teen Vogue and we'll share a link to that um on our site at weeklyrev.org. Uh time for a music break. <Membres> replacements with the ledge before that we heard radiohead with jigsaw falling into place and for that us girls with four american dollars got another article for you take a deep breath all right and this comes from the prison policy initiative you can find more info at prisonpolicy.org uh, for the poorest people in prison, it's a struggle to access even basic necessities, and this article came out um, yesterday, November 18th, 2021, and is written by Tiana Herring. Uh, our survey of all 50 states and the BOP reveals that prisons make it hard for people to qualify as indigent, and even those who do qualify receive limited resources. Many people in prison struggle to purchase basic hygiene supplies, stamps, and other necessities of incarcerated life, thanks in part to the low wages they made before entering prison and the mere pennies they earn working behind bars. Most prison systems claim to provide assistance to people who are extremely poor, or in correctional policy terms, indigent. However, our new survey reveals that these indigence policies are extremely limited, both in who they help and the amount of assistance provided. We found that in almost every state and the federal prison system, incarcerated people must maintain extremely low balances in their inmate trust funds before receiving any help with essential items like soap and stamps. And being deemed indigent is only half of the battle, as many states provide very few resources even to those who do qualify, What's more, in 18 states, the assistance given to indigent people is actually treated as a loan they must repay if their account balance ever goes up, meaning that people are required to go into debt for access to basic necessities. We gathered information on indigence policies in all 50 states and the Federal Bureau of Prisons by looking through state departments of corrections, websites, and contacting public information officers in each system. Here, we offer answers to two questions. One, how is indigence is defined, how is indigence is defined in each state? And two, what items or services are supposed to be provided to indigent incarcerated people according to state policies? Thirteen states require people to have less than $5 to qualify as indigent. Uh, Even the most quote-unquote generous states require poor incarcerated people to have less than $25 before they will provide them with essential items like shampoo and soap. And they have a map here of the U.S. and we'll post this link um, with either uh, the maximum amount of money someone can have and qualify as indigent, and it's either no indigence definition available between zero and $5, which is um, maybe 12 states, and then between five and 10, 10 and 15, 15 and 20, 20 and 25, and then the definition doesn't specify monetary amount, and that's for a few states. Most states have very have very 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 narrow definitions of who qualifies as indigent we are able to find a definition for indigence in 41 states and the federal bureau of prisons the remaining nine states did not have easily accessible definitions online and were not able to provide us with the requested information when asked the lack of transparency is disappointing and makes it difficult to hold prisons accountable for doing the bare minimum to support the poorest incarcerated people Worse, this inability to produce policy information may be an indication that some states do not have indigence policies, meaning extremely poor incarcerated people in these states might not receive any assistance at all. Every single Department of Corrections with an indigence policy requires people to have very little money before they can qualify. The monetary thresholds for indigent status range from a low of $0, meaning that people with $1 to their name would not be considered indigent, uh, to a maximum of $25. Over half of states have their limits set between $0 and $10. Additionally, most states require that people keep these low balances for at least a month before qualifying. If someone does get money added to their account that exceeds the indigence limit, they lose their indigent status and have to wait before they can be considered indigent again. In New Mexico, for example, an incarcerated person must have zero dollars in their account for a month before they qualify as indigent. Going so long with such low account balances mean that people are surviving on severely limited access to food and basic necessities like toilet paper. While 30 days was the most common wait time and certainly too long to have to wait for soap and envelopes to write home, Alabama, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and Utah all require people to wait even longer, from 45 to 90 days. These arbitrary limits on the amount of money people can have means that people can lose their indigent status and therefore their access to necessary supplies. Just because they received a small deposit from a family member or a or for working for a prison job. Many indigence policies specifically prohibit deposits and income of any amount in their definitions. For example, an incarcerated person in Maryland making 15 cents an hour for their labor can't qualify for indigent status, while 15 cents an hour will hardly make someone rich. People are not allowed to work and receive free access to indigent supplies. These policies often ignore that many incarcerated people have automatic deductions taken from any money deposited into their accounts, including for fines and fees and voluntary savings funds, or repaying the Department of Corrections for items they received previously while considered indigent. <sighs> we also found that four states put additional work-related requirements on who can qualify for indigence by limiting the status to those who are incapable of working, are involuntarily employed, or or are voluntarily unemployed, or are actively seeking work. The fact that free basic supplies are provided only to the poorest people and not to all incarcerated people for free by default fits the correctional trends of shifting the cost of incarceration onto incarcerated people and their families, as also evidenced through the rise of paid services like tablets and phone calls. The services offered to indigent people vary from state to state, but they are always very limited. The most common items provided to indigent incarcerated people are hygiene kits and supplies for sending a limited number of letters to loved ones. A number of free letters allowed range from one per month in Ohio to seven per week in Maryland. Legal mail is also mentioned in many policies, though departments of corrections are more likely to require repayment for for these mailings. In some states, people have to choose between using their mail supplies for personal or legal mail as they aren't always considered separate services. Eighteen states require indigent people to pay the Department of Corrections back for at least some of the services they receive while deemed indigent. In at least seven states, correctional agencies don't appear to offer any services or supplies for free without the expectation of repayment. The Department of Corrections in Washington State, for example, covers the cost of mailing up to 10 letters per month for indigent incarcerated people. However, if the indigent person ever loses their indigent status, the department will recoup the costs for any letters previously mailed for free by deducting money from their inmate trust accounts in states with repayment policies the only way for the poorest incarcerated people to stay out of debt is to simply not write letters to their families despite the fact that communication is crucial for maintaining family ties and increasing the chance of success upon release every prison system can and should do more Every indigence policy we looked at could be improved, but some states have implemented a few decent practices at no cost to incarcerated people or their families that others could consider adopting. One is that seven states allow indigent incarcerated people and their families the opportunity, though often very limited, to communicate via phone calls, video calls, mail, or texts free of charge. Seven states clearly state that feminine hygiene products are provided to those who need them free of charge. Seven states specify that toilet paper is provided to indigent incarcerated people for free. New Jersey provides indigent incarcerated people with a $15 monthly allowance for a commissary, which is important for access to food and basic necessities. California's Code of Regulations prohibits charging indigent incarcerated people for mailing services they received while considered indigent, including the cost of materials, copying, and postage if they lose indigent status. Stringent indigence policies punish the poorest people in prison by severely limiting the amount of money people can have and still receive free services dictating how they can spend the little money they do have and making them wait weeks in extreme poverty before offering help. All incarcerated people deserve at minimum access to hygiene items and ways to communicate with loved ones without having to take on even more debt. And then there are some footnotes. 1. Incarcerated people had a median annual income prior to incarceration that was 41% lower than non-incarcerated people of similar ages. Unfortunately, this national data is not available for individual states. 2. All states that have indigency policies require unreasonably low balances, but 9 states did not share them with us, and therefore may not provide any support to people unable to purchase necessities. Three. The term inmate trust fund is also called a trust account is a term of art in the correctional sector referring to a pooled bank account that holds funds for incarcerated people whose individual balances are sometimes treated as subaccounts. The term trust is used because the correctional facility typically holds the account as trustee for the benefit of the individual beneficiaries or subaccount holders. 4. Prison cafeterias often serve small portions of unappealing, nutrient deficient foods. As a result, most of the money people spend in the commissary goes toward purchasing extra food. Formerly incarcerated people who had little outside financial support report that they experienced constant hunger and a variety of health issues as a result. Five, while some departments of corrections may feel wait times are necessary to prevent people from manipulating account balances to receive indigent status, long wait times create unnecessary delays in needed assistance. Six, what's included in hygiene kits varies by state, but generally they include soap, shampoo, a toothbrush, toothpaste, and shaving equipment. Seven, these states include Colorado, Hawaii, Maine, New Mexico, North Dakota, Ohio, and Wisconsin. Oh, these are just footnotes. Uh, got it from the different footnotes that were mentioned. And then they have a whole appendix with, uh, the different states and the, uh, specifics that each state, um, which, which is provided to people and whether or not repayment is expected. And there's also a rele- relevant policy numbers, documents, and other sources. So it's a very informative article. Whew. I am going to take a deep breath and a break and uh uh let's play some more music yeah all right
0: is
2: over with.
1: Welcome back. That was the Mamas and the Papas. I don't think I've ever played them on the show before. Or maybe I have back early on, but I heard this on the radio yesterday and thought, why not share it? That was, I saw her again. Before that, kids don't follow by their replacements. Before that, write a list of things to look forward to. I think that's good advice, and that's uh, by Courtney Barnett. Showing another article. Ugh, I guess I didn't provide a trigger warning before the show started. That's my, my bad. This is from Mission Local. Redstone tenants told that their 107-year-old building has sold. This is super bad news. Redstone Building is a really awesome building here in the Mission District. I've been to a number of meetings, shows, etc., there. And uh, anyway, this is written by Annika Hum, and it came out on November 17th. Despite years of advocacy to keep the historic Redstone Building in community hands, the building has been sold to a real estate company called Aurora Lights LP. Well, fuck you, Aurora Lights. L.P. Uh, the 107-year-old building at 16th and Cap Streets is home to numerous artists, nonprofits, and businesses. On Wednesday, Redstone tenants received a notice of change of, in ownership as of November 17th. It directed them to start paying rent to Aurora Lights L.P., listed at 4 Embarcadero Center, Suite 1400. It's unclear how much Aurora Lights paid for the Redstone building. It was up for sale around $25 million, but during negotiations in 2019 with a nonprofit. The price dropped to $15 million. The change in ownership notice lists James Kilpatrick, president of Lakeside Investment Company and associated with Aurora Lights. John Rivera, the Lakeside asset and acquisition manager who had been speaking with tenants, declined to comment when reached by phone. Lakeside made headlines in 2015 for purchasing a rundown SRO building housing elderly Asian tenants in the East Bay and renovating it for students and tech tenants. It appears that the building has been renovated, but at present, there are no listings. Aurora representatives have been visiting Redstone tenants for the past few months to inspect the building. Tenants were also told in recent weeks to duplicate keys purportedly for Aurora's use. We're running out of shit to save. We keep losing these spaces, said Paul Bowden, executive director of the Western Regional Advocacy Project, a homelessness organization that has leased space in the Redstone building for decades. Ever since the previous owner, David Lucchesi, put the building on the market in 2018, tenants have tried to find a non-profit solution. Multiple tenants incited vocal protests, a GoFundMe was launched, and tenants attempted to convince the city to buy the building and save it for community use. That would be fucking awesome. I don't know why they can't just do that. Ah. Whew. Tenants like Bowdoin fear the change of hands will lead to an uptick in rent which could usher out low-income groups or artists that were attracted to the space for its low rents. As a homeless organization, we could say, this is who we are, and we could still get a place. We were welcomed with open arms. We were seen as active and engaged community members, Bowdoin said, and we could get it at a rate we could afford because it was a space that, that shit was okay. Although new building owners must honor previous leases and rent, once a lease expires, the new landlord can draw up a completely new agreement. But like Paula Tejada, owner of the ground floor empanada joint Chile Lindo, many of the tenants have month-to-month leases. My lease expired months ago. I'm on a month-to-month, Tejada said, adding that she pays only a couple hundred of dollars in month rent. A couple hundred dollars a month in rent. I don't know what that will entail. It was a handshake economy back there, confirmed Thomas Tran, a visual artist who leased a space at Redstone from 2018 until a few weeks ago. But the low rent and aging building also meant deteriorating facilities, Tran said. He observed rats, pigeons, mold, policies of bring-your-own-toilet-paper, and squatters during his stay. Nearly all tenants agree the Redstone is overdue for a renovation, but Bowden worries this could trigger a series of evictions. That's a major reason tenants lobbied nonprofits to buy the building with financial assistance from the city. A 2019 Board of Supervisors resolution vowed to preserve the Redstone Labor Temple as a center for social and economic justice organizations, nonprofit service and advocacy agencies, artists, and cultural groups by and for the Mission District's poor and working class. Clearly, the resolution failed to bring about that end. That same year, however, the Mission Economic Development Agency showed interest in buying. It fell $7 million short of the asking price and asked the city to pitch in $1 million. Already, Lucchesi whittled the price down from $22 million to $15 million at the community's behest. Ultimately, however, the nonprofit couldn't afford it. As a nonprofit, we made it clear from the start that Mita could not make this Redstone deal a reality on our own. That, based on the asking price, we would need for the full support of the city, investors, philanthropists philanthropists, and community members to be able to maintain affordable rents for all longtime tenants, plus rehab this the edifice, wrote Christopher Gill, a spokesman for Meta, in a September email. While some important support was forthcoming, it was not possible to gather the full support needed to make this deal workable. Bowdoin blames the city for that failure. I'm really sick and tired of our local elected officials treating this, the issue of gentrification, as if it is a tagline for their political campaigns, as opposed to something that they are actually willing to address and fight, he said. You keep on this pontificating liberal-ass bullshit that you give a fuck, and you control millions in a budget, and you can't find some resources? The impact is yet to be seen. Uh, Luis Cornejo from the urban group Real Estate, who is brokering the deal, said he would not talk until month's end. There's going to be a change. There's no doubt about it. How it's going to affect us, that's to be seen, Tejada said. Ugh, such disappointing news. And I really appreciate Paul Bowden's uh, words and Paul was a guest here on the show back, I want to say in 2014, maybe quite a, a while ago, but definitely learned a lot from Paul and hope that folks are able to stay in the building. And it's also just, there's plenty of money here in this city and the fact that it just gets funneled up to the top continually is just so disgusting. Mm-hmm. All right. On that happy note, shall we read another story about uh, how poverty is a policy, policy failure, not a personal choice? Okay. I'm not fully depressed. I'm maybe 98% depressed now. Why not make it to 100? Uh, this is from a great site called Invisible People. You can find more at invisiblepeople.tv. This is written by Robert Davis, and this came out on July 1st of this year. Ugh, uh, am I just too really depressed to read this article? I think I might be. Um, and also starts off with the former president. I think all the presidents are fucking assholes though. So I know that doesn't really narrow it down. Um, oh, I'm going to post a link to this, uh, on our site. Let's take another extended music break. I think with a, with an upbeat song. How about that? And then we'll see how I feel afterwards.
3: To come to this. where well, I'm back, but this time I'm with my man. And these women are putting their hands all over his Yamamoto whatever I swear to the iPod. And I'm much, much unhappy about that. I'd hate to come down to the level and become a BW, a basic woman. But if they don't stop, it's gonna get scandalous. Uh-oh. Don't slap me cause I'm not in the mood. Don't 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 slap me Cause I'm not in the mood. Don't slap me. Cause I'm not.
1: Hey everyone uh, So I think we're going to just do music for the rest of the show here For another 20 minutes or so 25 minutes Thanks so much for tuning in um, Not sure if we'll be back next week But we'll be, we'll be back in the future for sure um, Please feel free to check out The There are shows here every day of the week We've got some live performances of comedy as well If you're interested in doing a show here There are slots available So please do check that out also we've got the archive up of previous episodes of the weekly review go to weeklyrev.org and uh take a look thanks so much for tuning in uh if you'd like we've got a patreon up uh, for the time being that helps keep the website up and everything you can find also that at uh, weeklyrev.org i'm pretty uh whew, yep feeling it so please enjoy the music and we'll be back uh, next week
2: Say.
3: L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T Yeah,
4: L W F L M O I T. L W A F L A L. L W M M O I T. That's every Sunday, at 2 PM Pacific Standard Time, or if you're Carl, five percent five
5: percent Right. Standard I'm time.
3: so lazy. Three hours later I finally get to the show,
4: five PM. Let's hear the theme song. Oh.
5: Uh, uh, let's
4: watch full
3: length movie. Right, well,
4: let's do a full minute promo. Oh, never mind. Fall Bye. See, ya.
3: See you next time.
4: excellent mix of jazz latin gospel hip-hop and traditional folk ballads great stuff check it out labor and love is every saturday 10 a.m to 12 p.m serve somebody
5: since 1971 the san francisco tenants union has been fighting for the rights of tenants and for the preservation of affordable housing in san francisco starting from the struggle for rent control in the 1970s the tenants union has been the city's leading advocate for tenants The Tenants Union is supported by membership and counseling donations and this enables advocacy to be uncompromising and not influenced by pressures from government or other funders. It is a 501c4 since it campaigns for political candidates, so generally donations are not tax deductible, although large donations may qualify. Please visit wftu.org for more information. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. In San Francisco.
3: to have you in black plastic. Nice
4: to have you Saturday. Noon to two every Saturday.
2: All music. All night.
5: ACLU of California reminds us that we have the right to speak out. Both the California Constitution and the First Amendment to the United States Constitution protect our rights to free expression. There are many questions we face when we decide to organize and speak out. Do we need a permit? Are there limitations? Or when or when can we not demonstrate? What about civil disobedience? For all of this information, please check out aclunc.org. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco.
1: Safe sex is more than just avoiding STIs and pregnancy. No matter what you're into, make sure that you and those around you feel safe, comfortable, and are having a good time. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio.
3: Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs
4: think I'm funny, Daryl.
3: Well, I mean, you ever want to be... Like in front of an audience? Like other than like squirrels, dogs, and dead persons
4: Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought or two. You
3: know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention. L. Double. It's pronounced mutiny. Mutiny! mutiny. It's, it's pronounced mutiny! Mutiny! Uh, my turn-offs are guys who say mutiny. Mutiny? Let's watch a full-length movie on YouTube with Mike Spiegelman. Mike Spiegelman. Oh, Mike Spiegelman.